thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist this week with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now, in this week's show, a tough nut to crack. That's the problem of peanut allergy. But now, researchers say that they've made a breakthrough in helping to desensitise people, and we'll be finding out how. Also, cervical cancer. The screening rates are actually going up. That's a good thing, but it's still a major problem, and we'll be hearing why. And scientists have discovered what makes bacteria that cause meningitis so deadly. We'll be finding out how in just a second, Kat. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're celebrating the launch of the International Year of Astronomy. 2009 marks 400 years since Galileo made his first observations of the heavens above, and it all kicked off, appropriately enough, with a party at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. We're looking to use the International Year of Astronomy as an opportunity to inspire people, to make them enthusiastic about astronomy, to find out things they haven't found out before, to go outside at night and look up at the sky, and that will hopefully have the effect of increasing the number of scientists we have in the UK and helping the UK develop its its science-based economy. Starry-eyed stuff. Steve Owens will be explaining what the International Year of Astronomy has in store for us very shortly. Plus, we'll also be hearing what researchers have discovered inside a giant cloud of primordial gas left over from the Big Bang 14 billion years ago, and how scientists are using systems built originally to produce body scans to peer deeper into space than ever before. And if you're feeling hands-on this week and fancy your own bit of stargazing, in Kitchen Science, Ben and Dave will be showing us how to build our very own telescope, and then they'll be going to see the real thing in action. No, no, they might see some heavenly bodies like the ones in this studio. If you've got a question for us here on The Naked Scientists or some feedback, as ever, you can get in touch. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This week, scientists have suggested that they may have found a way to desensitise people who have peanut allergies. Peanut allergy is a big problem. About 2% of children in the UK are said to have it, and it can be life-threatening, if not fatal. People can have very, very serious reactions to the proteins in peanuts, which can cause anaphylaxis when their blood pressure plummets and they end up on the floor. And if they don't get resuscitated with drugs like adrenaline quickly, then it can actually be fatal. But what Andy Clark and his colleagues at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge have done, they've published a paper in the journal Allergy in the current issue, which is out at the moment, is that they took four 9- to 13-year-old boys, and these individuals were all proven to have peanut allergy. When the researchers looked in their bloodstream, they found antibodies called IgE antibodies, which are thought to mediate allergic reactions to things like peanuts and they were also able to show that when small amounts of peanut protein were put into the skin of these individuals they all had a reaction inflammation was seen thus proving they were reacting to peanuts and what they did was to give these individuals graded exposure so over a period of time starting with a very very tiny dose just five milligrams of peanut flour so in other words the protein from peanuts and to put that into perspective that's about one fortieth of the total protein you get in a single peanut so a minute dose they took that dose for about two weeks and then after two weeks the dose was doubled and then for another two weeks they took the higher dose and so on and so forth until they got the dose up to about 800 milligrams so roughly about four peanuts worth of protein and by the end of this the individuals were then after a six weeks at, at that dose able to tolerate eating 12 whole peanuts without any visible signs of reaction and the researchers have now prescribed a daily regimen of eating at least five peanuts in order to try and keep these people in a tolerant state. So what is exactly going on there? You know, how, how do they think it's actually working? Because surely I thought with peanut allergy, even tiny amounts could just trigger terrible reactions. 
Yes, and what we think is going on here is that the body has two arms to the immune system, an arm that attacks things and also an arm that regulates things because one of the things we have to do with our immune system is to tell friend from foe. And food is something foreign which we take into our body all the time, but if we had catastrophic immune reactions to it, we would die of starvation. We'd have to ignore everything. So there has to be a mechanism in place to make sure that you are tolerant. In other words, you don't react adversely to things in foods. And it could be that people who have allergies don't have enough of this uh, tolerance. They don't have enough of the regulatory cells in the body that damp down the immune response against certain things. So gentle exposure could increase the actual part of the immune system that does this regulation, helping you to tolerate it better. And it could be that people who have these sorts of allergic reactions don't have enough of that kind of regulatory type of cell and that by stimulating it with small doses up to a level where you can tolerate higher levels means that these individuals can then be protected and it's just that if they were to stop eating that particular food they would then lose that regulation again. So it seems to be a graded exposure gets you used to the things that you should be used to anyway and in some people it's just gone a little bit off kilter. That's really great. Well I hope that starts becoming clinical practice soon because it's really um, quite a devastating allergy for people to have. Um, From from one... um Sort of compared to, to cancer, a relatively trivial disease, but cervical cancer is in the news here in the UK as reality TV star Jade Goody has been diagnosed with the disease. And this week, researchers at King's College London have published a paper showing that rates of cervical cancer are higher in poorer areas than in richer ones. And these results do have important implications for targeting cancer awareness and cancer screening campaigns. Now, led by Dr Laura Curran, the researchers analysed data from over 2,000 women who were diagnosed with cervical cancer between two. 2001 and 2005 in London, Kent, Surrey and Sussex. Now these areas cover a wide range of different levels of social deprivation and they looked for patterns to link cervical cancer to social deprivations and related things like rates of smoking, uh, rates of teen pregnancy and cervical screening uptake. And they found that the rates of cervical cancer vary dramatically across the southeast of England and even in just some neighbouring areas there was up to a threefold difference with rates of cervical cancer much higher in poor areas. That is dramatically different. Why do they think there's such a difference? Well, there's probably a number of reasons. Um, firstly, smoking is obviously is linked to an increase of cervical cancer and rates of smoking we do know are higher in poorer areas than in richer ones. Also, we know that women in poorer areas are much less likely to take up cervical screening, which is something that saves thousands of lives every year in the UK. And last year alone, we know that hundreds of thousands of women didn't take up their invitation for screening. Another thing is, is that cervical cancer is caused by a virus called HPV, the human papillomavirus, and we know this is spread through sexual contact. So if you're looking at areas with high teen pregnancy, you assume that maybe these women are starting to have sex younger and they're more likely to be exposed to HPV. So that's probably another major reason. But the key thing about cervical cancer here is that it's very preventable. We know through screening, screening's picking up precancerous changes before the cancer's even developed. So in these areas, if women aren't getting the message that screening is important, that screening could save their life and screening's not it's not going to find they have cancer but it may even find that they have precancerous cells that they can be treated this would make a really big impact on survival in these kind of areas and obviously although the story of Jade Goody is is a terrible tragedy for her and her family it's actually done a lot to raise awareness of cervical cancer and the importance of screening so in fact it could be a lifesaver. You just have to look at the numbers of people who uh, if you look at cervical cancer rates in other countries who don't have screening programs and you look at the rates in other countries you see that it does have a huge benefit. Unbelievably yeah in in places like Africa and the developing world cervical cancer is one of the major killers of women it's in number one cause of death isn't it whereas in the UK I think it's down at number seven or something it, it's much much better a off. tiny number of women it, yeah. it's less than a thousand women die from cervical cancer yeah, there's about three thousand cases a year here isn't there yeah uh, actually diagnosed cases it's hundreds of thousands of cases of cervical cancer in the developing world it's it's crazy for, for a cancer that is so detectable and so preventable so get screened is the bottom line I think absolutely isn't it? thank you Kat now another major problem is intravenous drug use and drug withdrawal. Now, people who use drugs aren't just people who are shooting up heroin addicts. It's also people who get on prescription drugs and they might have a very painful condition and they take 
take drugs to deal with their pain, but then they have to stop taking the painkillers, and when they stop taking them, they have all kinds of unpleasant withdrawal symptoms. Well, now researchers at Stanford University in America think they may have come up with a way to make this, or I could say, to take some of the sting out of the tail of going cold turkey like this. This is Larry Chu and his colleagues, um, and what they did was to study strains of mice to see how they withdrew. Now, there are lots of different strains of mice. There are about 20 different strains of mice that we use in laboratories. And if they get um, given morphine or morphine-like drugs and then put into drug withdrawal, then some of the strains of mice behave differently to others. When mice are withdrawing from drugs, they tend to hop or jump a lot more. They become jumpy, just like a human does. But some of these mice don't. So the researchers wondered if there was something genetically different about these mice that meant they could tolerate withdrawal symptoms better than others. So they did a genetic screening and they've published their paper in the Journal of Pharmacogenetics and Genomics in the current issue. And what they did was to compare the DNA sequences of mice that did jump a lot when they were withdrawing from drugs to mice that didn't. And they found a hotspot in a gene which is called HTR3A. And this gene, in fact, is one we already know about. It's the gene that makes the receptor for the brain's feel-good chemical, serotonin, 5-hydroxytryptamine. And there's already a drug on the market called Ondansetron, which is given to people who have nausea and vomiting, and especially chemotherapy patients who get nausea and vomiting because of their chemotherapy drugs, and it's very effective. So, because they'd found this difference in this receptor... The researchers wondered, well, what would happen if we gave some of this drug to our mice? So they gave their mice some of this ondansetron, and the animals all jumped a lot less, suggesting that it seemed to be making their withdrawal symptoms a lot better. So, because this drug already is licensed for use in humans, they then went and recruited eight volunteers, gave them some morphine, and then put them into a withdrawal state, which you can do by giving a morphine-blocking drug called naloxone. And in half the subjects, they had previously given them a dose of this on Dancitron, and half they gave a placebo. And the ones who got the placebo were far worse off than the people who had the on Dancitron. Now, they're not saying this is the answer to preventing all kinds of withdrawal symptoms, but what they are saying is this could be the start of a way of looking at this problem and making withdrawal symptoms a lot less unpleasant because when we try and treat addicts at the moment, all we do is to substitute one addiction for another. We give them methadone or other drugs which basically satisfy the craving but they don't make the addictive symptoms go away if they stop and that's the nut we need to crack and this could be one way to do it interesting it'd be interesting to see how the research goes from there uh, and then finally my story about my favorite thing dinosaurs <laughs> i love dinosaurs i'm sure i'm a five-year-old child deep inside but we normally think of dinosaurs as huge great beasts roaming about the earth generally being scary and now researchers at the university of manchester have used laser imaging to reveal whether our favorite prehistoric beasts were trim and fit or big old fatty sauruses and writing in the journal plus one carl bates and his team used laser imaging and 3d reconstruction techniques to recreate the bodies of five dinosaurs of different sizes and they looked at two tyrannosaurus rexes they looked at something called an acrocanthosaurus atokensis easy uh, for him to say <laughs> yeah a strutiomimum sedens and an edmontosaurus anectens now their results suggest that the smaller of the two t-rexes they looked at could have weighed anywhere between five and a half and seven tons while the larger one probably weighed in at about eight tons and the uh, the other dinosaurs were slightly smaller the acrocanthosaurus I wish I hadn't done this story now acrocanthosaurus probably weighed in around six tons uh, but the strutiomimum was around 0.4 tons and edmontosaurus was just under a ton now what does this tell us well as well as making nice pictures of dinosaurs it's quite important because the team were making these reconstructions to try and find out more about how the dinosaurs probably moved and this is really interesting because dinosaurs as we know are the evolutionary precursors to birds and so understanding how dinosaurs moved and how their weight affected that will tell us more about the evolution of birds and hopefully a bit about the evolution of flight as well Thank you, Kat. What does it tell us about Virgin Atlantic? <laughs> Not uh, that kind of flight. It will never get off the ground. Now, also this week, scientists at the University of Oxford have discovered that the bacteria that cause meningitis, or at least one of the strains of bacteria that can cause meningitis, are also masters of disguise. And that's because these bacteria have learned to camouflage themselves so that they resemble our own cells, so the immune system finds it much more difficult to spot them. Now, meningitis is universally fatal if you have the bacterial form, if it's untreated, and it occurs when the lining of the 
or the tissues around the brain called the meninges get infected with particular strains of bacteria and in the case we're talking about here a strain of bacteria called Neisseria meningitidis group B. And Professor Susan Lee is a researcher at Oxford University who's got a paper in the journal Nature this week explaining how these bacteria do this and manage to hide themselves. Susan, how do they disguise themselves? Hi Chris. Well, in the work really came from um, a problem that was brought to us by Professor Chris Tang at the University of um, Imperial College. And he'd been working with meningitis for many years, looking at the bacteria and trying to understand them in more detail to try and generate therapeutics. And they'd noticed a couple of years ago that the bacteria somehow managed to um, mask themselves as human cells by coating themselves in a protein that circulates in our own blood called factor H. And this protein is a very important part of how we regulate our own immune response in that we've got one arm of our immune system which essentially seeks to destroy anything it comes in contact with in the blood. And to protect all our cells, we develop a series of sugars on our cells that then bind this protein called factor H which turns off this part of the immune system. So how do the uh, Neisseria meningitidis bacteria exploit that? Well, Neisseria can't make the same sugars that we can make. They don't have the machinery to make those sorts of chemicals. And so instead, the Neisseria has chosen a different route and manufactures another protein and instead uses this protein essentially to um, find, seek out and bind to factor H to coat the surface of the bacterium in the factor H in the way our own cells are done, but by a very different sort of chemistry underlying the interaction. And so your work has been to discover the structure of that protein to work out how the bacteria grab this protective, this disguise, factor H from the blood and then decorate themselves with it. Absolutely. We've worked with Chris to generate the structure of an actual complex between the protein from the bacteria and the protein from ourselves. And in doing this, it allows us to see how the bacteria uses the chemistry of proteins to mimic the chemistry of sugars that we have on our cells. The interactions are actually very similar. Some years ago, uh, we looked at the structure of sugars binding to factor H and we now see that the structure of this protein binding to factor H mimics the same sorts of interactions but using protein-based chemistry rather than sugar chemistry. And how, now that you've got that structure, will this help us to get a vaccine? Because we've had a vaccine for the A strain of meningitis for a long time and that's helped in places like Africa. We've had the vaccine for strain C, which has made a dramatic difference for young people, especially people going to university. B has always been the big problem. 90% of meningitis cases in Britain are down to group B. How is this going to help us get a vaccine against this now? Well, essentially, this protein that we've done the structure of is actually a, one of the components of the vaccines by both Novartis and Wyeth that are currently in phase three clinical trials and are really looking quite promising. But we think from looking at our structure, we predict that by altering a very small part of the protein, we can make a protein which will no longer bind factor H. And we suspect that this will make a much better vaccine because it won't be have a large part of its surface covered up by factor H because when you immunize somebody with the current versions of the vaccine trials that are going on, in fact, much of the bacterial protein will be hidden from the immune system because it will be bound to factor H and you therefore won't get as good an immune response against it as you might otherwise get. And so we've made versions of this protein now that are 98%, more than 98, 99% identical to the natural form, but they no longer combine factor H. And so we think that these will be much better candidates for targets in the vaccine. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That was Professor Susan Lee from Oxford University. She's got a paper explaining that work in the journal Nature this week about how Neisseria meningitidis, one of the leading causes of bacterial meningitis in Britain, actually disguises itself using something it robs from our own bloodstream. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Katani. Don't forget, you can also listen to us on Second Life. If you want to do that, you can go to the Scilands in Second Life and go to our mansion. It's 10 o'clock in the morning, Sundays, Second Life time, 6pm Greenwich Mean Time. And you can relax on one of our sun loungers and join all of the other Second Lifers who are in there listening to us and also commenting and discussing what they're hearing in the programme. Well, it looks like Ben and Dave have been doing their best Sherlock Holmes impressions this week as they've been spotted wandering about Cambridge, waving a magnifying glass in the air. Let's find out what on earth they're up to. For Kitchen Science this week, Dave has invited me along to do a bit of stargazing Kitchen Science style. Now, Dave, it's been very rainy and even snowing recently. Today's quite cloudy. What on earth inspired you to try stargazing in this weather? 
Yeah, I think stargazing is probably a bit optimistic tonight, but this year is the International Year of Astronomy because it's 400 years since Galileo built his first telescope. So I thought we'd have a go at building a telescope. So, although we may not be able to see any stars, a telescope should at least let us see quite a long way away. Now, this does sound quite technical. Is it something people can do at home? It's very, very simple. If you've got two magnifying glasses which work at different distances, they've got different focal lengths. So what you really want is one's a little eyeglass thing which you use for looking at gems and one conventional magnifying glass. Right, so we need one of those really quite small lenses. I think a lot of people use them to look at insects and so on, and something that you might use, say, to make text look a bit bigger on your newspaper. You could probably get an effect with a very, very small conventional magnifying glass and a big one, but it's easier if you get one of them, which is a hand lens. OK, and what do we actually need to do? Well, this one is ridiculously simple. All you have to do is hold the two lenses, um, the small one with a short focal length up to your, very close to your eye, and then take the larger one and put it in front of it and look at something interesting and then just move the outer one in and out until you get a picture. So in the absence of any stars at all in tonight's sky, you're actually looking at a street lamp. Is it sensible to be looking at sources of light like that? I mean, stars aren't very bright, given that they're so far away. Yeah, if you've got a very large magnifying glass, you'd probably be all right with the street light, but don't go anything brighter than that, and definitely never, never look at the sun with any kind of magnification at all. Because you could permanently damage your eyesight. That's right, you can focus all of the light from the sun onto the back of your retina and basically burn holes in it. OK, well, that's definitely something to bear in mind. Now, later on in the show, you're going to explain to me how this actually works, how this combination of two fairly low-power magnifying glasses are going to let us see things that are quite a long way away, and we'll also find out how they compare to professional telescopes. But first, just let me have a go and see what I can see with that. Well, we'll leave Ben and Dave playing with their magnifying glasses, trying to see far-off objects. I hope they're not trying to peer and enter anyone's bedroom windows. Perverts. Uh, sounds very optimistic to me, but they'll be back later and we'll let you know how they get on. Uh, they'll also be joined by Carolyn Crawford from the Department of Astronomy at Cambridge University, who will deliver her verdict on Dave's makeshift telescope. Thank you, Kat. Got a quick question here from Phil Kenyon, who says, how long does it take for heat to reach us from the sun? And he correctly points out in his email that it's about eight minutes, the distance between the sun and the Earth because light travels at about a billion kilometres an hour and the Sun is about 150 million kilometres away from the Earth so that's about eight minutes if you do speed equals distance over time and rearrange it. Um, and the answer is that heat arrives in the form of light because it's in the form of infrared largely that's reaching us from the Sun so that's just a form of light, it's a form of radiation so that too takes eight minutes to get here. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science... The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Katani, and we're gazing out into space to explore the secrets of the universe on this week's Naked Scientists. And in a few moments, we'll be finding out how technology that was designed for looking inside your body can actually help us to look out into space and to see further and deeper than we've ever seen before. We'll also be finding out how researchers have discovered a new type of galaxy, a primordial cloud of gas left over from the Big Bang, and hear what it's teaching them. But first, as it's the International Year of Astronomy, we sent Mira Senthalingam out to discover what's going on to celebrate this important anniversary and how we can all get involved. This week, I'm at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich for the UK launch of the International Year of Astronomy. Now, there's loads going on here tonight, including telescope viewings, models of early telescopes and planetarium shows. And yet, amidst all these events, I've managed to track down Steve Owens, who's the UK coordinator for the International Year of Astronomy. So, Steve, what are your aims with celebrating astronomy this year? We're looking to use the International Year of Astronomy as an opportunity to inspire people to make them enthusiastic about astronomy, to find out things they haven't found out before, to go outside at night and look up at the sky, and that will hopefully have the effect of increasing the number of scientists we have in the UK and helping the UK develop its, its science-based economy. So to actually get people excited about astronomy this year, what have you got planned? There are lots and lots of events happening around the country. The best place to find out what's happening in your area is our website, www.astronomy2009.co.uk. We have 2,000 events already on our calendar and we're getting hundreds more in every week. So local astronomy societies are planning events, university astronomy departments are running open days, people who run observatories are opening them to the public. We have online activities, for example, Cosmic Day, we're 
astronomers are blogging their lives, their daily activities, so there are literally thousands of events happening. Are there particularly big or main events that are happening, say, at key moments during the year? We're focusing a lot of our activities on what we're calling Spring Moon Watch and Autumn Moon Watch. If you like, they're the National Astronomy Weeks for this year. They're running from the 28th of March to the 5th of April and the 24th of October to the 1st of November. And those are opportunities really to get everyone in the country out looking at the sky. Of course, there are other big dates, big anniversaries. For example, Thomas Harriot, who was the British Galileo, he beat Galileo to it in 1609 on July the 26th. He observed the moon through a telescope for the first time. No one had ever done it before. Galileo did it a few months later, but Galileo was a good self-publicist. He told people about it, became famous. Thomas Harriet didn't tell anybody, and therefore he's not consequently very famous. But we are celebrating his life and his achievements in the very place he observed exactly 400 years to the day after he made the observation. Okay, so I'm now here with President of the Royal Society, Professor Lord Martin Rees. Hello, Martin. Hello. In the 400 years since Galileo first made his observations, what do you think the main discoveries in the field of astronomy have been? Galileo was the first person to use an instrument to uh, enhance what you could see with the unaided eye, and astronomy has always been at the forefront of technology ever since that time. Here at the Royal Observatory, precision instruments were made to determine longitude and measure time, and now, of course, our knowledge of the universe is enhanced by very sensitive ways of detecting faint light and large telescopes on the ground and in space. So it's always been technology that's driven science, um, and, of course, the science feeds back into astronomy. And through those developments, we have come to realise the scale of the universe and the very wide range of objects in it, galaxies, stars and planets. And what would you say the main questions that remain unanswered today are? Well, we're still just beginning, of course, but I would say that we would like to understand uh, how our universe evolved from simple beginnings about 14 billion years ago into the complex cosmos we see around us and are part of, of galaxies, stars, atoms, and, of course, on at least one planet, a complex biosphere where we've evolved. Another thing we'd like to do, I think, is to understand the planets around other stars, which have been discovered just in the last 10 years. And I think in the coming decades, we will realise that each star we see in the sky is the centre of a retinue of planets, which are just as interesting as the planets that we are used to in our solar system. And we may know whether there's life on some of them. What field of astronomy are you particularly focusing on at the moment? Well, I'm interested in understanding how the first stars and galaxies formed and how long after the Big Bang that happened. I'm also interested in rather more speculative questions about uh, how big the universe is. That might sound a strange question, but the part of the universe we see with our telescopes, which extends about 10 billion light-years away, may be just a tiny fragment of physical reality. And we'd like to know how much more there is beyond what we can directly observe. Now, as I mentioned, there's a whole host of activities going on tonight, one of which is a planetarium show showing people what to look out for in the night sky this year. So I'm now in the planetarium with Darren Baskell, one of the astronomers here at the Royal Observatory. So, Darren, what are the things people should be looking out for this year in the night sky? Oh, the moon is always a beautiful sight and it's a wonderful object to look at through even binoculars. And then there's the planets Jupiter and Saturn that will both be visible throughout most of the year. And the rings of Saturn you can see through even a small telescope. And if you've got really good eyesight, you can actually see the rings of Saturn through binoculars. Jupiter also has over 60 moons, but four of those moons are so big and so bright, we can easily see those moons in binoculars. Well, the sky is a pretty big thing, so which direction should people be looking in to see these planets? Well, the planets are very bright in the night sky. So in the summer, if you look towards the south, it's about 9, 10 o'clock in the evening, Jupiter will be the brightest object in that direction. Are there any other highlights as well as planets that people can look out for this year? Yes, well, early on, when, as we begin the International Year of Astronomy, in the winter months are dominated by the constellation of Orion. So look south in the evening sky throughout the winter, a bright red star, red giant star called Betelgeuse, and there's a bluer star called Rigel at the bottom of Orion. So if you look for two stars quite close to each other, they're separated by your hand span at arm's length. One bright red star and a bright 
Blue Star, and you probably found the constellation of Orion. So if you want to get starstruck, go outside, stick your hand in the air, look for the stars of Orion or maybe even some planets. Uh, There's more information about what you can do to celebrate the International Year of Astronomy if you visit www.iya2009.org. And that was Darren Baskill from the Royal Observatory talking to Mira. Before that, we heard from Astronomer Royal, Martin Rees, about the big questions that are facing astronomy today. And we also heard from International Year of Astronomy coordinator Steve Owens on the various celebrations taking place over the the course of this year. Thank you, Kat. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, the email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, we want to know what we can see in the night sky, and we want to know how we can see it even better. And it's not that normal when you see things which have been invented for life here on Earth being applied to space, because normally it's the other way around. But that's exactly what Professor Alyssa Goodman from Harvard University is doing. She's taking some of the systems that have been geared up to do better body scans with MRI and applying them to images of the night sky to enhance those pictures. And she's with us now. Hello, Alyssa. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. So tell us a, a sort of... I've given a brief intro there, but tell us a bit more about this work. Sure. Um, well, we have a challenge in astronomy that more and more often we're able to get a third dimension of data, so something like distance, not always exactly distance, but instead of seeing just a flat sky, we can see things where we know what's at what distance. And we'd like to see, for example, in my work, gas clouds uh, that are busy forming new stars, and we'd like to see what they look like, the way that we could go around 3D clouds in the sky. But of course, we can't do that in astronomy, so we need a way to put the images back together into something that looks more like a three-dimensional picture. And it turns out that the computer software to do that, that we need, is very similar to the software that they use in medical imaging. Why is it such a problem, then, compiling pictures into three dimensions like that? Well, it turns out it's less of a problem in other fields. And in astronomy, people are just not used to having that kind of information. And so they were starting to try to build their own software. Um, And then uh, we realized that a lot of other people have faced this and done a very good job of, for example, making animated movies. And so you may know that Pixar and companies like that have some of the most powerful computers around. And it turns out that 3D as particularly 3D animation, so moving 3D pictures is rather computationally intensive to do at high resolution. And so people in other fields, uh, as I mentioned before, notably medical imaging and uh, and, and, in film and movies in Hollywood, had figured that out um, quite well. And so we're trying to borrow on what they already learned. And when you start doing this, do your do your images literally come alive? Can you see things that, or can you identify details that may previously been have been overlooked? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we're interested in, in my own work, which again has to do with star formation, is um, what the impact of, of jets of material and, and expanding shells from stars have on the clouds that the stars are forming in. So imagine a, a terrestrial cloud and you sort of set off a bomb in it and you wanted to see what the, the expansion wave, some kind of sphere expanding from that uh, bomb looked like. Um, you'd really love to be able to see a 3D image of that. And so when stars uh, set off either supernova explosions or just very powerful winds from stars, the same kind of thing happens to these clouds that they're in. And it's very important for us to understand what that looks like. And in a lot of cases, it's very difficult to see whether or not that's happening, even though it's very important because it tells you what happens to these clouds over millions of years as they evolve. And this software has led us, among other things, see the outflows and the shells um, that come from these stars in a 3D way that the human brain understands that was very hard to see when looking at just slices of the images before. Didn't researchers begin to speculate that, in fact, our own solar system, in other words, the sun and our clutch of planets, actually get buffeted into existence by a big star nearby that was doing something similar to what you're describing? It was putting a jet of material out which pushed a cloud of gas to make it fall into itself, which then formed us. Yes, absolutely. There's a theory called triggered star formation, and the idea is that there are these gas clouds out there that are marginally what's called self-gravitating, which means that they're sort of held together by their own gravity, but not quite. They might blow apart, they might collapse, but if you come by and smush them a little bit, sort of trigger them, that's where the triggering comes from, then they're more likely to collapse quickly and make something like our solar system. And one way to do that is having a big blast wave, either from one of these outflows or from some sort of shell, possibly even a supernova come by. And what are you actually looking at at the moment? What's the prime focus of of the study at the moment? 
Well, right now um, we have something that we've been doing over the last five or six years called the Complete Survey of Star-Forming Regions, and that's a long, funny acronym you can look up online. But anyway, what it, what it does is it looks at some of the most nearby star-forming regions with just about every technique we can use from the ground uh, at optical wavelengths and at, at radio wavelengths. And at, in the radio is where we can make these three-dimensional images. And importantly, the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is the infrared counterpart of the Hubble Space Telescope, has also looked at these same regions. So they're essentially targeted regions where we really want to try to understand the whole process of star formation. And what we've been able to do with this 3D uh, imaging project that we call astronomical medicine is to be able to give people 3D views of what these very large regions of space look like um, to be able to put back together in our minds a picture of what's going on. And then from that picture, we make hypotheses. For example, our, our recent work is about the details of the role of self-gravity, of, of how likely little bits of this gas are to collapse over time on themselves, and to understand whether or not our theories and our mathematical ideas are right, really the best way to do that is to see a picture of what they mean, and, and we've been able to convince some people lately that we think we're on the right track. And you have some absolutely spectacular pictures on your own website, and if anyone intrigued enough uh, to look at it, having heard you here on the radio, Alyssa, uh, wants to check you out, where, where's the web address so they can go and take a look at those pictures? Well, actually, the best way to do it is just type my name, A-L-Y-S-S-A Goodman, G-O-O-D-M-A-N, in Google, and I think it's the first link that comes up. It's easier than typing. And actually, now you've been on here, if they type in Alyssa Goodman naked, uh, they'll, they'll even hear your interview all over again. Wonderful. <laughs> Better than naked photos. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Alyssa. Okay, bye-bye, Chris. So Alyssa Goodman, who is from Harvard University, she's come up with a fantastic way to apply the techniques used to analyse body scans here on Earth to deep space and begin to reveal some of the mysteries of what goes on when stars are blowing themselves to pieces and disrupting their local cosmic neighbourhood. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Katani. We are staring at the stars today. Uh, if you've got any questions for us, our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Kat. Now, also this week, scientists have discovered a new type of galaxy. Using a NASA space telescope called GALAX, which is short for Galaxy Evolution Explorer, and this can see ultraviolet light, a team of US scientists have been studying a patch of the sky called the Leo Ring. This is thought to be a leftover remnant from the Big Bang. It's basically a huge cloud of hydrogen and helium. But what the scientists saw were signs of newborn stars in small galaxy-sized clumps inside the ring itself. But what's weird about this is that there doesn't seem to be any dark matter there. And dark matter was thought to be a key ingredient that was needed for a galaxy to form. In other words, it sits at the centre of the galaxy and then pulls all of the other constituents in together. Here's David Thilker. What we've done is discovered a new unexpected type of galaxy, a dwarf galaxy, forming in the local universe. These galaxies are odd because they have apparently condensed from pristine gas uh, without the help of any dark matter halo. Can you just explain that a little bit? So when you say that this is made from pristine gas, what do you mean by that? Sure. Um, well, in the, the universe today, there are very few remnants of the, the material from which all other galaxies originally formed. The best known candidate for one of these pristine primordial clouds is the Leo ring. It's a structure 600,000 light years wide, consisting only of hydrogen and helium in a nearby galaxy group about 30 million light years from us. And the evidence is that this object has been around uh, from the time that that galaxy group formed and has been doing absolutely nothing ever since. And how have you tried to understand or to explore this distant mass of gas and what do you actually think it's doing? The GALAX satellite that I've been using, the, the Galaxy Evolution Explorer, is a, a telescope in, in Earth orbit launched by NASA in the year 2003. And we've been surveying the entire sky in, in ultraviolet wavelengths uh, that are sensitive to the, the process of star formation. So what happened was I was looking at the galaxy that is nearby this Leo ring and I knew that this primordial cloud was in the field of view of this other galaxy. And so I thought, why not go ahead and take a look and see if we see any evidence for star formation. And at that point, it was possible to detect something. Why do you need UV in order to do that? Why can't you just look using normal light telescopes? 
Right. The UV is, is best for detecting star formation because the most massive stars, uh, several more times in mass than the sun, emit most of their light in the, the blue part of the spectrum. And so they stand out like a light post to the ultraviolet telescopes. And those stars, the, the most massive ones, also live a very short lifetime. So if you see them, you know that they've essentially just formed. So the combination of the color and the lifetime of the star allows us to probe star formation with the ultraviolet. And when you use the UV uh, cameras like this to look at this distant entity, what do you see and what is that telling you? When we look at the Leo ring in uh, the UV wavelengths, we have uh, detected uh, ultraviolet emission coming from uh, clumps within the, the gaseous ring. And those clumps uh, are, are much smaller than the, the size of the, the Milky Way galaxy, for instance. And they qualify as dwarf galaxies. And the interesting thing about this detection is that previous radio observations, uh, the, the same ones that were used to initially discover the, the gas of the, the Leo ring, uh, also indicated there was no dark matter uh, within those those clumps of the ring. So you, you have this combination of ongoing uh, star formation and no dark matter within a cloud of, of pristine gas. And it, it's really something quite unique that, that hasn't been seen before. So why do you think it's not there? And yet, if you look at all of the other galaxies that we have around us, such as our own, you do see lots of dark matter in the centre. What's going on and why is this different? Well, it's just that the process of structure formation in, in the universe, uh, essentially the, the dark matter acts as seeds. So you have this process uh, of gas collapsing onto dark matter condensations. And th this happens to be one filament that doesn't appear to have completed that process. It's, it's still uh, floating around in this galaxy group, but hasn't actually uh, accreted or fallen onto any of the the more massive galaxies in the center. So it's, it's somewhat of an oddball, uh, the, the fact that it still exists at this point. What is this telling us then about the universe from which we all sprang, our galaxy and the others that we know are out there? Uh, and what insights does this give us into the, the early phases of the universe? Well, I think it tells us that the universe can still surprise us, first of all, and second of all, the, the fact that there may be more ways to form galaxies than had been previously recognized. In particular, the process of dark matter halo-dominated galaxy formation may not be the only one. It's reassuring to know that the universe can still surprise us. That was David Filker. He's at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, and he's published that discovery in this week's edition of Nature. Now it's time to go back to Ben and Dave, who have bowed to a higher authority when it comes to telescopes, not doing so well with their makeshift one then, and decided to visit Cambridge University's astronomy department. Welcome back to today's stargazing kitchen science, where earlier on Dave asked you to try and find a couple of different strength magnifying glasses and try and use them to act as a telescope. Now, we've been playing with it for a little while, and in fact, we've come to see a real telescope. Now, Dave, the telescope behind you is 20 foot tall, and it looks quite impressive. Yours, just about, let me see, a street lamp about five metres away, and it was upside down. But how does it work? Okay, something we've done on Kitchen Science before is using a lens to produce an image. So if we take the first magnifying glass and we hold it next to this white wall... Oh, I see. As you move it about, I can see basically what looks like a perfect picture of the strip light on the other side of the room. Yeah, that's right. So the light is being taken from the strip light over there. It's being focused by this magnifying glass to form an image over here. If, well, if I take this away from the wall, that image still exists. I can actually project it on my hand. I see. So the image is always there about, in this case, six or seven inches away from the magnifying glass. Even though we can't see it, the light is still being concentrated on that point. But what does this have to do with telescopes? We could put a piece of greaseproof paper at that image and then use this second magnifying glass to magnify it and get a picture. So we'd actually be looking at a magnified image of the image. Yeah, that's right. However, actually it works without the piece of greaseproof paper because the light's spreading out just as it would do at a real object. And so you can get a magnified image using the second magnifying glass. So as long as the two magnifying glasses are the right distance apart, then we can use the first one 
to make an image of whatever we're looking at, and the second one to magnify that image and make it look bigger. But why was it upside down? Well, if you actually look at the original image, it's kind of hard to see with this strip light because it's horizontal, but that image is actually upside down because any light ray which starts off high up comes down, passes through the centre of the magnifying glass and ends it up low down, and vice versa, so the image is upside down. So when you magnify the upside down image, everything's upside down. Okay, so it's upside down, but it did work quite well as a telescope. How could we have made it better? Well, there's a couple of obvious things you could do to this telescope. One thing is it's really hard to hold it. So you want some way of holding the two lenses so if you could mount them some way so you can adjust it gently to get the focus right. The other thing you could do is put the two lenses in a tube to block out the light coming in from the sides so you don't get stray light getting in and reducing the contrast of your image. But seeing as we're at the Institute of Astronomy here in Cambridge, I've invited Carolyn Crawford along here, who should know a lot more about this than me. So, Carolyn... Dave obviously has a very simple telescope, but is this really what the first telescopes were like? It's actually a very good example of what first telescopes were like, and it's got the principal components you need. The first magnifying glass that Dave's got is the larger one, and that's the one that collects all the light from things that are very faint and makes them brighter. And then the second magnifying glass is exactly what you need just to make that image bigger so you can see it. So those are the principal components of any telescope we still use today. And does that include this enormous thing behind us, which I'm assuming is much, much more powerful. Yes, it is. The one we've got behind us is still quite old. It dates from 1838, but it's the same principle as Dave was demonstrating with his telescope. The first lens, instead of being a handheld magnifying lens, is actually one that's 12 inches in diameter. So you can imagine that can collect an awful lot more photons from a distant source. But the catch is, to collect that and bring it down to a focus, you need a tube that's just short of 20 foot long. And at the other end, we have what we call the eyepiece, but really that's just a glorified magnifier, like Dave's second magnifying glass. And we can change that around and get different sort of magnifying strengths according to whether we're looking for something that's um, small and star-like or large and fuzzy, if you want different magnifications for different kind of objects. But the basic principle is very much the same. And how have telescopes moved on since these basic principles? Well, the kind of telescope we're demonstrating here is just one kind of telescope called a refractor. Most of the large telescopes today are reflecting telescopes. And this idea was first brought about by our own Isaac Newton from here in Cambridge. And the idea here is that curved mirrors can have a lot of the same properties as lenses in the way that they will bend and bring light to a focus. And the advantage of using mirrors is, first of all, the the light gets folded up. It gets bounced around between mirrors and a telescope. And so the telescope itself is a lot lot less cumbersome, a a lot easier to move around. It doesn't have to be so long as with a refracting telescope. There is a problem with these telescopes that use lenses in that you can only make the lens so big before it starts to sag in the middle. If you think of it, you're holding it in place around the edges... And if you get something that's, say, appreciably more than about 40 inches across, the centre begins to deform under gravity and that distorts the image. So if you want to go bigger, you're really looking at using mirrors. They're much more reliable and they're much easier to make and transport. So the very largest telescopes we use today all use mirrors. And those mirrors are of the order of eight, even ten and a half metres across. Well, that sounds enormous. How on earth do you make sure that a mirror that size is exactly the right shape? I would have thought it's so easy to go wrong and then ruin your entire telescope. Well, of course, the prime example of that is the Hubble Space Telescope, where they did get the curvature of the mirror wrong, and there was a very big problem when it was first launched in space because all the images were out of focus. So you can imagine, usually we do test this quite thoroughly. There are also new and exciting experimental innovations which involve making mirrors out of segmented mirrors to mock up an even larger surface. So there are many advances in how you use mirrors as a reflecting surface. It doesn't just have to be one solid mirror. But a lot of what we're looking at in space now is not, in fact, visible light. Mirrors and lenses are very good at collecting visible light, but how do we look at the things that we otherwise can't see, the X-rays and the microwave radiation? Well, of course, we're only talking about the visible side of astronomy, and astronomy stretches right from gamma rays, X-rays, ultraviolet, down to radio and infrared. And radio signals are collected on massive parabolic dishes. People may have seen that in terms of Jodrell Bank or here in Cambridge, the radio dishes just outside of Cambridge on the Barton Road. 
There are special challenges when you want to take pictures in the UV because Earth's atmosphere blocks out the light, so that has to be done from orbit. And you get to really exciting challenges with X-ray astronomy because X-ray photons have so much energy in them that they would just slam into the surface of a conventional optical mirror. You can only bring them to a focus if you put the mirror almost edge on to the X-ray photons. And so it sort of ricochets off the mirror and it's brought to a focus that way. And so if you looked at an X-ray telescope, it would look nothing like the one Dave's got here. It would be like a set of nested cylinders collecting the photons and bringing them to a focus at the other end of the telescope. So there's a huge variety of ways that astronomers use telescopes to do their astronomy. That was Cambridge University's Carolyn Crawford helping Ben and Dave out. I think they've got kind of a bit of case of telescope envy there as she's shown them how big telescopes that put their magnifying lens contraption to shame. They will be back next week with more Kitchen Science, but until then there's lots of great experiments you can try at home at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. If you'd like to see some experiments in action, complete with some very posh voices, you can go to thenakedscientist.com slash sporan that's sporan as in sporan, where you can see Dr. Other experimenting with whatever he can find in his sporran. Now, Chris, we've got a question for you here from Robert in Wisbeach. And he says, Has it, have you got anything to say about the comet Lulin that can be seen by the naked eye on Tuesday night? What's this about? Yes, this is a comet which is making its first foray into the inner solar system. It's actually coming um, to us from further out in our solar system. It's called Lulin, L-U-L-I-N. It was only discovered a year ago and on... Uh, the 24th of February, it will sweep past Earth within a distance of about 38 million miles. So that's about 160 times further away from the Earth as the Moon is. So it will be very visible to the naked eye, and it should look a sort of greenish colour because it's got lots of cyanogens, which are sort of cyanide-like chemicals, and diatomic carbon, so complex carbonaceous chemicals in it. So it will have this nice green hue. People should be able to see it in the night sky. Scientists at Leicester University are going to be involved in looking at it, actually, because they are behind one of the missions called NASA's SWIFT satellite, which is a satellite that can look for things like gamma-ray bursts, but it's equipped with the right kinds of equipment, spectroscopes and things, that can look at the comet, and if you look at the light coming off of the comet, because the, the chemicals coming off the comet will taint the light coming off the comet, you can see what chemicals must be in the comet by looking at the spectrum. So they'll be looking at that because comets are thought to be sorts of time capsules dating from the early vestiges of the solar system and they can tell us something about the building blocks from which we all come. So have a look in the night sky then. Thank you, Kat. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. In a second, we'll be talking to Diana O'Carroll for this week's uh, Naked Scientist question of the week. It's actually been sent in by David Attenborough. So you can find out what he asked in just a second and if Diana solved the problem. Bringing the facts to bear... The Naked Scientists. And now it's time to get all starstruck because here's Diana O'Carroll with the question of the week. Yes, I'm very excited about this. I've been doing a little bit of research for David Attenborough. Well, if you look at uh, trees growing in Europe, often closely related trees growing on exactly the same ground with exactly the same climate, they have different shaped leaves. Why? And people will say, oh, well, it's because the airflow over it is in the particular circumstances or the way that the water drips off it. That's the reason. But the trees are growing in exactly the same places alongside one another. Why? They have different shaped leaves. I don't know the answer. Yes, so why can leaves vary when so many other things have to remain the same? I'm Edmund Tanner. I'm a senior lecturer in plant sciences in Cambridge and I work on tropical forests. I've been working in Panama for the last seven years doing a big experiment on mineral nutrition and a bit on photosynthesis. Okay, so I think the answer to the question about why closely related trees growing exactly the same ground and in the same climate have different shaped leaves is actually that they don't. That because they're closely related, they are very similar. So, for example, all oaks have broadly similar shaped leaves because they share most of their genetic information. Perhaps a more interesting question is why distantly related trees growing in the same ground and the same climate have different shaped leaves. And the answer, I think, is it doesn't matter very much. It doesn't matter about leaf shape very much. As long as leaves are reasonably good at doing their job, which is fixing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, then it doesn't matter whether they are wavy at the edges or not wavy at the edges. They have to absorb the light. And once they've absorbed the light, they need to fix CO2. And as long as they put their competitors in the shade, 
any reasonably functioning leaf will do the job. And so it matters where your leaves are in relation to other trees. So if you're an ash tree, you've got to be above a beech tree, or if you're a beech tree, you've got to be above an ash tree. It doesn't much matter what your leaves are like. So it turns out that leaves just aren't a feature of a plant that is strongly selected for. As long as it works in photosynthesising for the plant, anything goes. But the best answer on the forum this week came from Dent's student, who said that plant genes can mutate with each generation and that the environment does not always have to play a part in this. Well, from making energy to using it, and next week I'll be finding the answer to this question. Hello, my name is Christiane. I would like to know how much energy is used when you do a Google search. So do you really need to boil a kettle to find the answer to your Google query? If you're feeling lucky, then let us know the answer via email, and that's chris at thenakedscientist.com or on the web, where we have a forum that's full of questions that need answers, and that's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana. Diana O'Carroll, who makes Question of the Week for us, joins us every week with a new question. And if you would like to, as she says, put your questions and answers on our forum, that's nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, where you can join in the debate. It's also available as a podcast on iTunes. So if you're very fixated on Question of the Week, you can get hundreds of them almost. Uh, You can download them for free on iTunes. Or if you're fixated with Diana, as we all are. Here's a question for you, Chris, um, from Peter Robinson. How do we know that another planet collided with the Earth? He says that he saw a TV programme that said that during Earth's evolution, another planet he thinks called Thea smashed into it. How do we know this when it doesn't exist anymore? Okay, well, we have to go by what the models are telling us and what samples we've got. Now, we know we have a very large moon around the Earth. In fact, it's unfeasibly large for a planet of our size. So why have we got such a big moon, where it is, and why is there just one of it? Well, what the prediction is, and based on what we know about the composition of the moon from samples that the Apollo astronauts have brought back, is that the moon is made of exactly the same stuff, give or take, as the surface of the Earth, the Earth's crust. So the big question is, how did something made pretty much of the same material as the surface of the Earth end up orbiting the Earth unless something bashed it and put it up there? So the best suggestion that scientists can come up with, based on all the evidence we have, is that in the early phases of the formation of the solar system, so something like 4.5 billion years ago, there were two planets, one the future Earth, one another planet which they've notionally called Thea. These were very, very similar in terms of their orbital pattern and one ran into another. It was like cosmic billiards that went on. And as a consequence of that massive great cosmic collision, the planet Thea smashed into the Earth, the cores of both planets effectively fused, and in the course of making this collision, a lot of the surface material from the Earth got ejected into space, and it formed a sort of shroud or envelope around the Earth, which slowly coalesced in the same way as the rings around Saturn have coalesced to form rings from what would have originally been a sort of envelope and they then coalesced and aggregated to form the moon. So it's on the basis of there's no other better explanation than that one to explain why we have this phenomenon of the Earth with this big moon and what the moon's made of. I guess with astronomy, so many experiments or so many observations must be like that because all you have are the observations we can see now and then you have to infer back in time where where things must have come from. Um, Here's a sort of related question from Richard, um, who's in Australia, Richard Nuri, and he says, how do we measure distances across the universe? Well, this is a very difficult question to answer, or at least it was. The problem is that if you're looking at stars in the night sky, if a star is at a certain distance from you, its brightness can't really be used as a measure of how far away it is because a bigger star will be brighter. And because light gets dimmer the further it is from you, a big star can be a lot further away than a small star and yet they will both appear exactly the same brightness. So how do you solve that one? Well, this kept astronomers guessing for a very long time until around about the turn of last century, a woman working at Harvard University, actually in contact with Hubble, after whom the Hubble Space Telescope is named, solved the problem. Uh, Her name was Henrietta Leavitt, and she was looking at star charts, and she noticed that some stars appeared to get bigger and brighter and then dimmer and weaker, and they did it with a regular period. These have now become known as the stellar yardsticks. They're called Kefid variables. They're stars that swell up and then shrink down, swell up and shrink down. And because the period with which they do that varies with the size of the star 
You therefore know if you look at how often a star like that is blinking on and off. You know how big it is. Therefore, you can work out how bright it is. And because light follows an inverse square law, you can work backwards to work out basically how bright that star must be, and therefore how far away it is. So scientists now use these Kefid variables when they look at a distant star structure. They can use the period of any Kefid variables that are there to work out. How far away those particular entities are. So that's the stellar yardstick, and it was solved by a lady at Harvard about a hundred years ago. Now I've also got a question here from David Compton, who says, "How fast would a bullet need to leave a gun in order to get into space?" Well, the forum has actually come to our rescue to answer this one. NakedScientist.com/forum. There's a terrific answer. RD points out that anything leaving the Earth. To get into space, needs to be travelling at escape velocity. That means 11.2 kilometres per second. And to put that into perspective, even a high-powered assault rifle probably fires things only at about one kilometre per second. So it's running significantly too slow in order to achieve escape velocity. And it also doesn't take into account air resistance.、Uh, but there's a very good answer from Bored Chemist because one thing to consider here is: well, what about if we just build a very powerful rocket and fire something from Earth? Well, he says there's a limit to How far you can get something to go, and how fast you can get it to go using a gun. The projectile is driven by hot gases produced by the explosion, but the gas is made of molecules, and they have a range of velocities. The hotter the gas, the higher the average velocity. To a fair approximation, the average speed of the molecules is the speed of sound in that gas. And once a projectile is moving faster than that, the gas molecules will get left behind, so they can no longer push on the projectile to make it go faster. So by fudging the issue and using Hot light gases like helium, for example, you could make it go a bit faster, but there's no way that you'll get to escape velocity. So sorry about that, David. Well, that's pretty much all we've got time for this week. I must say a very big thank you to our contributors, Susan Lee, Caroline Crawford, Alyssa Goodman, and David Thilker. I also need to say thank you to our wonderful production team at the Naked Scientists, Ben Valsler, Diana O'Carroll, Mira Senthingham, and Dave Ansell. Next week we'll be talking about the science of comedy and music and finding out why laughter. Is so addictive. If you have any questions about that, or you just want to say hi, you can drop us an email. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. 